0: A podcast one production. I don't want to mislead people and have them think that we just threw something at the wall and it just happened to work out. It sounds like a really lucky story when you say, oh, this was a hobby. We loved it. It was a love affair. And all of those things are true. But we also wanted to make it successful.
1: I'm Margie Hartley, executive coach to senior leaders around the globe, as well as 11 of the top ASX listed companies. And this is Fast Track. My daughter Grace grabbed me in 2018 and she said, You have to listen to this podcast, Mum. It's amazing. It's smart people who like dumb stuff. It's called Shameless. And even though I'm from another generation, I love the information the relevant nature of the conversations, and the joy shared in the podcast. In just two and a half years, Michelle Andrews and Zara McDonald have achieved more than most podcasters dream of. With over 17 million downloads and a dedicated fan base, they've become the unintended voice of a generation of 20-somethings. I want to talk to these two savvy and talented people about how they have built a super successful independent media business how it feels to be successful so young, and the responsibility of their voice. Welcome, Michelle and Zara, in lockdown, in your studio in Melbourne. Thanks for joining me.
0: We're so grateful to be here. We're very excited. Thank you for having us. So, simple
1: question at the beginning. What's the driver and the catalyst to start podcasting?
0: Oh, I think the... The drive for us to start Shameless in 2018 was really the realization that we were voracious podcast listeners. We adored podcasts, but we were 23 and we felt like a lot of the podcasts out there, particularly in Australia, were probably targeted towards women who were 10, 15, 20 years older than we were. And so Zara and I met at work and we used to have the I mean, I'm biased, but we used to have some pretty funny conversations about The Bachelor or about celebrity gossip or just what was happening in our lives at the time. And we kind of thought, well, we're desperate to find a podcast that suits us and talks about the topics that we're interested in as early 20-somethings. Instead of waiting for someone else to go out and create it, why don't we have a crack at it ourselves? And so Shameless, the podcast was born. What's the piece that drove you to quit your jobs
1: and believe that you could actually creative podcast that people would listen to?
2: I mean, the first thing that drove us was a fear that we were never going to be very employable in the media landscape if we were just writers. Like being a writer, I mean, is a great skill to have, but in a media landscape that's kind of falling apart at the moment, we were really terrified that we were never going to be employable if we didn't have something else up our sleeve. So, initially, yes, we thought there was a gap in the market, but also it was just sort of something that we wanted on our resume. We'd started it on my bedroom floor. We didn't even have enough room in my bedroom, <laughs> um, in my family home a couple of years ago to have like a desk. So we used to get like cramps on our legs and have to like pause the audio to move our bodies so that we weren't completely cramping the entire record. But I think the drive for us was, like I said, wanting to have another uh, skill. in our bow. I don't even know what the saying is, Michelle. I think you tried to say it the other day and we just screwed it up twice. It was that. It was also a really great love of it. Like I, and I think Mish was the same, found something that we really genuinely enjoyed and I'm not someone that has a, a heap of hobbies. Like, I don't think either of us have a heap of hobbies. So, to find something that we really loved to do, that we saw was starting to connect with people, was kind of enough in those early days. We had no sense that it could take off and become our full time job or look like what it does today. We weren't shooting for this at all. It was just a lovely, lovely byproduct of being very passionate and enjoying what we were doing.
1: So, you love the process rather than looking for a super big outcome of being super successful.
0: Yeah. Oh, we never intended to be here two and a half years on. And don't get me wrong, we're so stoked that we are. And we're so excited that Shameless has become a business and we have employees and an office space and all of these incredible things and a book now. But at the beginning, we did it because we loved it. We weren't making any money from it. If anything, we were pouring money into it and the little money we had as 23 year olds. And it was really just a passion project and a hobby and something as Zara said to add to our resume. So to kind of look at how it has evolved in a relatively short amount of time is incredible to us because we just never envisaged it becoming what it has been. That said... I don't want to mislead people and have them think that we just threw something at the wall and it just happened to work out. It sounds like a really lucky story when you say, oh, this was a hobby. We loved it. It was a love affair. And all of those things are true, but it was a love affair that we also took very seriously from the get-go. I think Zara and I are type A people. And even if we are doing something for the love of doing it, and even if it is just to enjoy ourselves we also wanted to make it successful. And so from episode one, we had spreadsheets and we had targets and we really did try to legitimize this very unlegitimate thing we were doing by tracking its progress and trying to make it into something that was going to work. And so, yeah, as much as two things can be true, I guess it was a hobby, but it was also something we took seriously in the get go. I think the only goal in the very early days was to potentially earn a little bit of side money to supplement our current careers as writers. We were freelance writers and journalists at the time. So I think that was the goal. The big dream was to maybe have a couple of sponsors on and to maybe earn a few hundred dollars a month from the podcast to help us out with rent. It certainly was never the goal to end up in podcasting full time.
1: Okay. I said to Zara the other day, what's your second album going to be? Because your first has been a hit. (laughs) I'll come to that a bit (laughs) later. But um, this idea of creating a business from something you loved, I'm curious about this, this idea of your now careers are independent media company owners, which is phenomenal, not only for your age, for anybody to succeed at in this landscape to Zara's point earlier, it's a mad landscape in media at the moment. So how are you going as business owners? What is it that is emerging for you? Is it pure joy or are you beating your heads against the wall?
2: Maybe a bit of both. (laughs) A bit of column A, (laughs) a bit of column B, Mark. I mean, it's really funny because had you asked me a couple of years ago when I went into journalism, I would have said I had a personality where I never really had any intention or drive to go out and work for myself. I quite loved the idea of working for somebody else and having the stress of a business on somebody else's shoulders and turning up to work and earning what I knew I was going to earn and going home at the end of the day. Like I just had no intention. And now that um we have, you know, created a business and are building a business together, I'm starting to realize that there's probably nothing else I'd ever want to do. And I've suddenly become someone who really genuinely enjoys it. I mean, it's weird, but I think Mish and I are quite creative people, and there's so much creativity in building a business. Like, there's so much strategy and so much creativity. And I just had never considered the fact that our skill set actually also could suit, you know, running your own thing as well. So, That's been a huge surprise to me that I've enjoyed it and found a lot, a lot of joy in being independent, in running our own thing, in calling our own shots, in doing everything pretty blind and seeing stuff kind of slowly come together. Um, And I think that's the beauty of working in podcasting, to be totally honest with you, like building a media business in a time like this is not easy at all. And there are definitely times where we've felt insecure and definitely ignorant about the best way to move forward. But the thing about podcasting is it's so relatively new in Australia that everyone's kind of driving blind, like it's not just us. So it's quite freeing in that sense that age and experience sometimes means very little in a new medium like this.
1: True, but I would also add that you have actually claimed your success in a really professional way. So there are other people who might be hit, so to speak, but don't actually utilise that or repurpose it or build on it. And in your business, have you found that people have been particularly competitive or, you know, the old media dudes trying to jump in and grab some of your success? How are you dealing with what I've experienced in the past, which is quite a, a competitive landscape?
0: I mean, it's kind of funny because in the early days, we were desperate for anyone in traditional media companies to take us on. Like we pitched Shameless to our employer, Mamma Mia, they said no. We pitched it to every major podcast network under the sun and we're told no again and again and again. And so they didn't want us in the first year. And I think it was only when we started, I think when we hit maybe our first million downloads Zara mm. in the March after the following year that Networks started coming out of the woodwork and wanting to book meetings with us and talk to us about joining them and signing on with them. And we just weren't interested. I think we're not really interested in speaking to people about taking Shameless onto a network anymore because they didn't believe in us necessarily in the very early, early stages, like the embryonic stages of the company And we've always backed us and we've always believed in ourselves. And I think hopefully we've proven to ourselves by now that we don't necessarily need help. Like we don't need someone with 20 years experience in the media to help us out because to be blunt, I think everyone has the same base knowledge about a new media form. Podcasting is new to all of us. And even if someone was a hotshot in television or in radio, I don't necessarily think those skills always transfer over to a brand new platform. And so- I don't know if on the competitive question, I actually don't think we've experienced any sense of competition recently. What I really do love about women in podcasting, particularly in Australia, is I do believe that there is a lot of sisterhood, I guess, in that people know that traditional media in radio rejected women. It's very, very rare to find any radio show, even today in Australia, that has two women hosting And I think women found their own places in podcasting and that means we're all quite supportive of each other. We could rattle off dozens of names of women in the industry who have been very supportive to us and hopefully we to them. And we do want to be a force for that in the future. We want to be able to lift other women up and other minorities up as well because unfortunately we feel like mainstream media completely ignored women who aren't a minority but every minority under the sun really for so long.
1: Yeah, it's particularly hard for women who are from a minority, um, coloured women, particularly in Australia, to have a voice. And if you can do that, then that's a mighty achievement and it'd be great to see. I'm curious about ambition. So you sort of said you went with a passion, Where does ambition sit with you? Have you got big plans? I talked about your second album, but, you know, from here there's such a launch pad for you guys. What's what's ahead?
2: It's interesting because I would consider Michelle and I like very, very, very ambitious. I think um, it's a funny word that has probably been derided for some time, or maybe not even explicitly derided, but I do think it seems like a weird thing for someone to admit, like I am extremely ambitious. But the truth of the matter is, we think about work all day, every day, our minds are ticking over at night and in the morning. And, you know, when we're waking up or when we're going to bed, like we are very driven by our careers and by work. That said, we actually don't have a single plan for 2021. (laughs) And that's not a a laziness thing at all. I I think it's just that we relish the idea that we have a blank slate in kind of a really short term sense. Like we love the idea that we can create something quickly that is timely, that, you know, speaks to people in the moment rather than kind of pre-planning all this stuff that might be irrelevant in six months. I mean, I think if 2020 has taught us everything, it's that the world can change on its head. So I think for us, we're ambitious, we want big things, but for the moment, I'm not entirely sure what that is next year. And I am so completely excited by that fact that we get to create it, you know, not hamstrung by anything.
1: How incredibly refreshing not to have people with a 10-year plan and (laughs) it marked out for every year on the future. I think that's really exciting. And one of the things I do know is when I speak to really successful people on this podcast, there's often uh, a sense of vision, but actually not quite sure how they're going to get there. So Mm. uh, I love, love to hear your ambition there look, being the voice of a generation, I saw you both smile when I mentioned that in the introduction. And it's a big thing, but I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to claim it for you. (laughs) You are the voice of a generation as far as I'm concerned. You know, every 20-something that I speak to knows what shameless is. I can't guarantee that anybody over the age of 40 is particularly clear (laughs) about what you do or where you come from. So what is the responsibility that you bear and the pressure now that you have such a following?
0: Oh, it's mammoth. It's monumental. And I think that's why when you first said that to us, we both probably awkwardly smiled and blushed a little bit because I think we know that. We know that too much almost, how much the pressure is and how much the responsibility is on our shoulders. And I think we are terrified, to be honest, about ever misusing our influence. I think we grew up... At a time when Instagram influencers were kind of birthed. When I was 16, I started to look to women on Tumblr or on YouTube or on Instagram. And I think we were the first generation that had that. And I think I, as a 17 and 18 year old, really struggled with eating in that period of my life. And I think that was so largely informed by the messaging that I was receiving on Instagram largely about clean eating and plant-based eating and really orthorexic messaging about food. And I think going through that experience and seeing all these people promote laxative teas and absurd ways to lose weight and, I don't know, prioritizing this look of having a gap between your thighs or a bikini bridge, which I won't even get into what that is because it's ridiculous. But these kind of trends on Instagram really infiltrated my mind at that age. And I think Zara and I both grew up, both experienced that type of stuff. And we realized that we don't want to do that to young women. We want to be the antidote, hopefully, to those kind of messages. We want to use our platform for good, whether that's to collaborate with charities or it's to share a feminist message or just to empower people to use their voice and share their stories. It's very very close to our heart that we use our influence for good overall and I think the the worst kind of feedback we could get from someone is that we're misusing that influence. So hopefully as our careers go on we always keep that close to our hearts. I think the the biggest tragedy would be for us to lose sight of that because I think so many have influence and accept all the perks and the privileges of that influence but perhaps jerk some of the responsibility and the accountability that comes with that.
1: So I'm aware that you both have a quite a wider audience and you support certain social causes. Can you give me some examples of what you've been doing?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that, you know, when you know, as Mish said, the audience size is how it is. Very small things that you say on the podcast can have a really big impact. I mean, that can be from as small as a, <laughs> a silly like cocktail recommendation that ends up going bananas, or it can be something far more important, like I know, this week on the podcast, Mish made a point that she read an article that cancer screenings across the board have absolutely plummeted in the last few months because people just aren't getting themselves checked out because of the pandemic. And she made a point being like, if you're looking for a sign to get something checked, be it a pap smear, or you're wondering whether your parents have sent their bowel cancer screenings back, take this as your sign, go and do it. And it was, it was so lovely and warming to receive a DM. I think it was from a GP who said, that she had noticed an uptick just this week of young people our age, young women our age getting checked in. And she was wondering where all these people were coming from. And then she had listened to the episode and was like, it it must be from here because you can't kind of possibly explain an uptick like this without it being directed somewhere. So I think even if when it's not, you know, like a huge charity push or something like that, even small by the by comments being made on the podcast can have an impact. So we are very aware because of that, that, that each word we say kind of, Matters, and we have to be very careful about the words that we use and and the causes that we push. So
1: this is a podcast that has been downloaded seventeen million times by young people. And if there's something I know from the research, particularly piece that's currently unpublished, that says that young people are struggling with their emotional intelligence, their empathy, their connection to community. There's an uncertain problems with our wicked future and climate change. You know, I could go on. I think we get the picture. What do you think for young people? How do they remain hopeful and grounded at this time? You talked about Instagram, which I find terribly ungrounding even at my age, but obviously for others. How do we remain hopeful and grounded in these times as young people?
2: It's a really interesting question because I think when we're talking in the context of something like social media that can kind of elevate everything that's wrong with the world, but just as easily can kind of elevate The stuff that's very good with the world. I have a pretty complicated relationship with social media as a lot of people do, but I also think the one thing that I'm finding in our work especially is that it is connecting me to a sense or a kind of community that I probably never would have been exposed to before. And I think small communities are being built online and people are bonding online because of their political beliefs or because of the things that they really believe in. I think our generation is very passionate. I think there's a sense too that we are lazy or not very politically inclined. And I would argue the opposite. I would argue that, A lot of people that I'm coming into contact with and we are coming into contact with in this job are very politically motivated and very passionate people and I think these people are finding each other online. I think hope is found when you actually find these communities and people are actually finding people they can bond with because it is a pretty disconnecting time, I think, we live in a world where, you know, you probably don't know your neighbours as much or uh, I think social media can make you feel lonely when it comes to looking at people you know. But when it's connecting you with people that you don't know, I think that's a really beautiful thing and I think hope can be found when we actually come together because I feel a lot of hope when I look at the people that talk to us after the podcast. I feel a lot of hope when I think about how stupid we were when we started this podcast and how smart the listeners (laughs) have made us. Really, because they've held us to account and they've made us think. So... That's been huge for me. Mish, I'd be interested in what you have to say.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think as toxic as social media can be, I think if it's harnessed in the right way, it can be powerfully great. I think it's difficult. That's the one thing with the algorithms, the way they are and the way these social media apps kind of gear their algorithms and their templates to make them as addictive as possible. I think it's a challenge and it's a challenge everyone needs to be cognizant of. Hopefully, young people can figure out a way to navigate social media in a way that is healthy and balanced and in a way that makes it productive for them. Like Zara said, I think for all the negative aspects to it, there are positive connections being formed every single day online. And as hard as it is, hopefully, the more we kind of come to terms with this new world, the more young people can get the best out of it.
1: Amazing. I'd love to know your advice for employers of 20-somethings.
0: What are people
1: telling you that they want from work? Are they searching for purpose and meaning at work or is that not so important?
2: I mean, I think that a lot of young people are looking for purpose at work and I think that that can be abused from time to time. I think a lot of young people, and I think I'm talking from a very, you know, specific example because we've come from the media And have worked in the media as young people. But I do think that a lot of people that want to work in the media are very passionate because it's not an easy industry to try to enter into. So I would say that a lot of young people are passionate and want purpose. And I think what we find with a lot of workplaces is it's very easy to take advantage of that passion and that desire for purpose because that young person will do just about anything to hold on to that job. They will work as many hours as you ask. They will be thinking about work as much as they want, they will sacrifice almost everything that they have in order to keep that job. And I think for employers to be aware of that is the most important thing because I probably wouldn't be surprised if a different generation of people just don't understand that desperation to hold on to a job or for a job to mean something because, and I, like I said, I am talking very specifically about the media, but it is a completely different landscape And and young people are just desperate to hold on to the work that they have. And like I said, that can be taken advantage of.
0: Yeah, I would say for employers of young people that it's important to bring in some sense of work-life balance. I think if you're the boss or if you're in the upper echelons of a business, it's easy to think that people should be accountable or answerable on emails or on Slack 24-7. I actually think it's really important though, and I hope Zara and I really imbue this in Shameless Media that we are accountable to be contactable at all hours of the day because it's our company. But I would hope that our employees know, particularly the most junior employees know, they get paid for the hours they work. And if we are slacking them, we wouldn't. But if we are slacking them at 11pm, they do not have to reply until the next time they are working. I think something Zara and I have both experienced is the expectation that if you have a job in a media company, particularly a digital company, you are supposed to be switched on at all hours of the day and I don't think that's I don't think that's healthy I don't think it's conducive to a happy work environment and I think young people just want to be rewarded and if they're not going to be rewarded Mm. financially we at least have to reward them with their time and make sure that we can keep work at work and home at home because at the moment so much work is just bleeding into the into the home environment like young people are expected to work when they wake up until when they go to sleep and I just don't think that's okay.
1: No, it's not okay at all. And one of the things that we're finding is that people are expecting people to be grateful for their jobs. Mm. And you should be grateful that you've got a job, let alone a pay rise. What are you talking about? Go away. Mm. So there's an interesting sociological shift that's emerging for me in terms of the clients and the people I talk to and actually the world of work. And I think with unemployment coming down, Mm. the youth will be those that are hit most. And sadly, you know, our recent budget didn't really pay much attention to youth, social housing, or women. So, louder voices are really needed out there. So, I just want to thank you both for taking the time on fast track to talk to us about being successful and that success that's come early for you both, and also this responsibility of being the voice of a generation. I'm so grateful, Michelle and Zara, for your time.
0: Thank you so much. It's been an absolute delight chatting. Thanks, Margie.
1: Fast Track was presented by me, Margie Hartley, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer, Tina Matalov. Audio production by Darcy Thomson. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. To hear more episodes, listen for free at podcastoneaustralia.com.au. Download the free Podcast One Australia app or search Fast Track Podcast.